0: Couple things, a little business to get out the way. I want to give a shout out to a couple people. One, Q Quirinius, he's out there working uh, the lobby. However, it is, I believe, his first week, correct? Leading SLT? There he is, making his grand old entrance. <laughs> so I wanted to give Q a shout out because uh, the, the boys in blue and the women, sorry, the, the people that wear blue on weekends, we couldn't do church without them. So it's his first uh, weekend leading. I also want to give a shout out. Uh, Yeah, I'm just walking around the sanctuary. Uh, Our tech world is so often behind the scenes because y'all are looking back here now. Usually you never look back here unless something wild happens. Uh, Recently, Greg has taken over the the sound realm, and uh, he's not just a killer carpenter. Shout out to the bearded crab. He's great with sound, so I wanted to give him that as well. Just recognize some of the people that make church happen week to week. But as Emily said, we're thankful that you're here with us. And I also wanted to give a shout out. Uh, Ben, you could throw my sermon slides up there. Um, to a special somebody whose birthday is tonight. He is not here, uh, but Pastor Fred, if you don't know, we are one church in two locations. So he pastors the Newport News campus, which has been there for over a decade. He's been pastoring for over a decade. He's left an incredible legacy when you think about this church, the church in Newport News, uh, what's happened at each campus. And there's just, this is not an exhaustive list, but this picture shows three things I love about Pastor Fred. The first is his sense of humor. Uh, because doing, not just even just doing ministry for over a decade, but you live for over a decade. Uh, You can turn into a cynic sometimes, like where you just lose your sense of humor, you get too serious. Fred loves God, loves his church, loves people, and it shows because he's got a sense of humor. So that's one of the things I love about him. The second thing I love about him that is more of a metaphor in this picture, he did not scramble my brains. But uh, he has as a teacher of the word in Newport News for so long, I sat under his teaching for years. And I'm sure some of the people that planted this campus also were under his teaching for some time. And he shaped the way I see God. He shaped the way I see his church. He shaped the way I see people. So he's left a legacy in terms of what he's taught. And then lastly, he, uh, he's wearing gloves, uh, protective goggles in this picture because we were doing some work, doing some work. And, and Fred is, is a pastor who grinds. Uh, we're here because of his vision. And the vision that God gave him and our leaders for this campus and then him enacting plans, right, seeing through the vision that God gives him and working hard. Some people ask pastors, well, what, I- what exactly do you do during the week? Never say that to Pastor Fred. That guy works his tail off. He'll be kind to you, but I would just shake my head at you. He works so hard and we're here because of his labor. So uh, there's actually a card out there at the info table. Y'all can just sign your name on the way out. I'm going to give that to him, make sure he gets it in the office. But we're here Because of Pastor Fred, so Fred, you might podcast this this week, so happy birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday. But also, one of our elders here, Anthony, might be counting the offering right now. But last week, uh, I wanted to to give him a shout out because at the beginning of our sermon on the devil and and myth-busting with things around the devil, he, he got two out of three answers right in that little pop quiz. And he looked at me and said, where's my prize? And I looked at him and said... Joke's on you, buddy, but uh, because we believe in a a God who is is a giver of all good gifts, right? We believe in a God who says, ask and you shall receive. Uh, I was thinking about Anthony. I was like, all right, I'm going to get him something. And two things about Anthony is he is an, an avid reader. Pryor reads more than all of us combined, right? He just reads his tail off. Sure, he cheats. I'm an old English major. He listens to audio books, right? I got to get over that. I'm, I'm, I have my flaws. <laughs> but he reads so much, and if you follow him on Facebook, he shares throwbacks to the 80s and 90s all the time. So I was like, I'm going to get him one of those choose-your-own-adventure books. <laughs> See, who remembers these? Thank you. Because I told Anthony I was giving him one, and I'm like, I got a throwback for you, choose-your-own-adventure books. He's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And it turns out he didn't start reading until like a couple years ago. He's like, I wasn't a very avid reader when I was a kid. So I'll give this to Anthony when I see him. But how many of you guys, you remember those Choose Your Own Adventure books? Those were all over the library when I was a kid. They flooded the youth section of the library. And what they were, it was a a, a second-person narrative where you took on the role of protagonist. And every few pages in the book, you had a decision to make. And based on that decision... The plot would go this way or that way, and you jump all around the book. You jump from page 12 to page 37, back to page 22, depending on the decisions you would make. This copy, Anthony's In for a Treat, has 28 different endings based on the decisions you make throughout the book. And so you controlled the plot, and you you took control of the, the character, and you chose your own adventure. There were some 250 to 300 million of these sold in the 80s and 90s. So we're talking hundreds of millions of these in circulation. Again, they were so popular. One, because they were a quick and easy read, right? It looks thick, but you can finish this in 10 pages if you make all the wrong decisions. So I don't know if you guys would, would, in the library when I was a kid, there were summer challenges. We had to read X amount of books and you would get a prize. And then these were the cheat code because you could say, yeah, I read it. And you read read 20 pages. But uh, I think they also were popular because it's, a little easier to make a bunch of wild decisions and screw up your life in book form uh, rather than in real life. <laughs> but, you know, this was actually in the news. Choose Your Own Adventure was in the news a month ago because I guess Netflix made an uber-violent movie that was Choose Your Own Adventure. And they, they referenced this book again and again. And the original creator sued Netflix because they didn't like what the direction they took with it. And uh, they said it, quote-unquote, capitalized on the nostalgia from these books. So fancy that. It was in the news a month ago. And it blows my mind. I haven't seen the movie that you could take Choose Your Own Adventure and somehow make a movie where you're jumping around. I don't know, I don't know what it's like. I don't know how it worked. And it blows my mind that we could make a Choose Your Own Adventure movie. But I think if we're honest with ourselves as a church, we have taken Choose Your Own Adventure... And we often apply it to this book, the Bible. And it's not always bad. You think about Bible reading plans. My Bible reading plan jumps all over the place. Sure, I get through the Bible in a year, but I'm jumping from Old Testament to New Testament to Psalms and Proverbs every day. It's a lot of jumping around. Or maybe you think about uh, different devotionals or maybe... Uh, focused reading plans in you version, for instance, where it's like, okay, you're struggling with anger, let's turn to Proverbs. You're struggling in your marriage, let's turn to Hosea. You're struggling with forgiveness, turn to Ephesians. All these different things. You're feeling this in the moment, let's go to this passage. And again, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this practice in and of itself. But sometimes as a result, we bounce around the Bible, make choices about what to read, how often, if at all, to read various parts, and how to piece it all together. And what happens is the Bible becomes a book that people take many different paths through, sometimes skipping portions altogether. And we find our favorite pathway through the text and we arrive at different ways of life and beliefs at the end. And this is how you can have people that have wildly different belief systems, wildly different lifestyles, even wildly different political views. And each one of them, if you ask them, would say, Well, that's biblical. I got it from the Bible. It's because of this pattern. And we've talked about the root issue so often in the church is because we're reading verses but we're not reading the Bible. We've mentioned this statistic again and again that 30% of Christians in the church in America will never read the Bible from cover to cover. So what happens as we've talked about is we develop a a copy and paste Christianity and theology where we take bits and pieces from here and there, from sermon quotes and social media, and we kind of piece together what our belief system is, how we shape our, our, our way of life based on Scripture. And we get to a point where I believe today our greatest problem isn't what we don't know, but it's what we know that's just a little bit off. Like the verse that inspired this series is Galatians 5.9 in the Amplified Version that says a little leaven, a slight inclination to error, leavens the whole batch. It perverts the concept of faith and misleads the church. And what we talked about in the intro to this series is what's tricky is Satan likes to copy and paste scripture too. He likes to take God's words and then kind of either take them out of context or slightly distort them and throw them back at us. It's what he did to Adam even in the garden that tripped up humanity. It's what he tried to do with Jesus in the wilderness. Took God's word, word for word, and tempted Jesus with scripture. And as I've said before, this isn't so we'll be suspicious or, or wary when we read scripture. But we should awaken to this reality that scripture interprets scripture. I, I love commentaries. I've got way too many. (laughs) The other pastors are always coming to my office. Shout out to Dean. He actually gave me a bunch uh, recently. I love them. I love books. Steph is always asking me to take books to the office. She doesn't realize my office is already overflowing because I love commentaries. I love books that dive deep into what scripture says about one topic or the other. Even broad overviews. And I've been recommending some, some books from the pulpit throughout this series. And I would make a recommendation tonight. That no matter what scripture you're in, no matter what passage of scripture you're in, the best commentary on that passage is the rest of the word of God. What is the the context and content of scripture that speaks to what you're reading in that moment? Because taken out of context, we can make scripture say a lot of crazy things, just like the enemy does. We can... We can make it say all kinds of things, just like we can with statistics, just like we can with words out of people's mouths and throwing them in newspapers. It's wild. I remember when we first planted. Uh, I, re- I don't even remember what Suffolk Herald did an interview. And, like, just it was crazy. The words he picked out, you're like, man, I didn't even really mean it to sound like that. You can do that with the word of God if you try hard enough or if you're not trying. It can be an accident. But what we've talked about is that when you come across what seems like it could be a myth, an untruth, And it's a churchy, maybe it's a churchy cliche that we just throw around. When you come across that, hold it up to life, but then also hold it up to, again, the greater content and the greater context within Scripture. It's how we've examined Scriptures that get quoted for questionable application, like in Galatians. There's no Jew or Gentile now in Jesus Christ, and we apply that as love should be colorblind. Or I don't allow women to teach men, which Paul wrote to Timothy, and we say women shouldn't teach. They shouldn't have any ministry within the church or don't judge the words of Jesus as we should never judge, don't judge. We've also looked at churchy cliches like God will never give you more than you can bear and it'll happen if you have enough faith. And we've examined all of the above in this now becoming a lengthy series. But we checked it because these beliefs can keep us from careful thinking about complex behaviors. They can hurt or do damage when we speak them to others. And we see often that when we follow misconceptions in life, we can be misled and misstep, both as individuals and as a church. But tonight I want to look at uh, an oldie but a goodie. It's a, a verse that many have memorized. It's printed on a lot of mouse pads, T-shirts, mugs, desktops, whatever. But it's Jeremiah 29.11. It's a fantastic verse. It says in Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Now this verse says three times over an important reality to grasp. That God has plans. God has plans for you. God has purposes for you. God has a destiny for your life. It says it three times over because he didn't want us to miss this. And to pull this verse and apply that to our lives, it's not a misapplication or a misstep. Because you see throughout scripture this reality. You see in Psalm 139, 16, it says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Ephesians 2.10 says he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. These are powerful verses worth memorizing, worth clinging to in every season, that God has a purpose for your life. If you wake up breathing, it's because God's not done with you yet and he has plans and purposes for you today and for the rest of your life. There's a destiny and calling on your life. And only a fool would take that reality and ignore it, or just walk away from it. When the God who created everything, who's over the universe says, I have a plan and purpose for you, we should recognize that, we should value that. But I think what happens in church culture, his plan for you often looks like the following. That God has a specific path forward in your future. He knows it, he's laid it out for us like a blueprint, and our task is to find this path and to walk in it. And if we find it, if we make all the right choices, We'll walk in happiness, we'll walk in his favor, and we'll walk in destiny. But God forbid we make some wrong decisions that don't line up with his plan. Then we can end up in a, a labyrinth, a meaningless maze when it seems like we've lost God's plan for our lives. And the question that often would creep up in my mind in past years is if God's plan is so important, as we see in Scripture, then why does it always seem so elusive? If it's so important to my life, how come it's so hard to find and frustrating at times? And I think, I know I've found for myself, I'm often looking for the wrong thing. Because a lot of times when we think about God's plan for us, we think of it in terms of like a master plan. It's comprehensive down to your home, down to the car you drive, down to the person you marry, right? The one, the one God has for you. He's picked for you as a part of his plan for you, which is spelled out down to the last detail. Now, it's important to recognize we see that God gives very specific instructions to people in Scripture. He tells Hosea to marry Gomer. He tells Jeremiah before the Israelites go into exile to buy a very specific plot of land. What else we see? I have another example. What does he say? He changed the apostles' travel plans when he's out on his missionary trips. God's like, no, don't go there. Let's let's go over here instead. Very specific instructions. Instructions, but in terms of the greater context of Scripture, it's important to recognize this is the exception and not the norm. More importantly, these are specific to moments in their life, but it's not reaching to every detail of their lives. Imagine if God's plan were so far locked in and overreaching as we sometimes think they are. How would this play out in our fallen world? Right, think about different things, like like if if if. If I'm messing up God's plan for me, there's a domino effect where I'm messing up his plan for everybody else. It's a good thing Steph just stepped out of the sanctuary because when we were looking for houses, uh, before we planted here in Suffolk, there was a house we had our eyes on. She had her heart set on, right? This was God's house for us. We were praying for that thing daily. It was beautiful, built in like 1906, massive. And it was a foreclosure. It was was so uh, affordable for us. But because, you know, you got to dot your I's and cross your T's and close on the house you're selling, just be, in that window of time, it got it seemingly snatched up from beneath us, right? Somebody else bought it. So we ended up buying the house we bought, which we love. Right? But every time, maybe you've seen pictures of me running that trail, Nansman, what is it, Suffolk Seaboard Coastline Trail, right? Every time I read the run the full seven miles, I pass that house. And there's this little rage that comes from like my gut up to my throat and I got to pray through it, right? As I'm running, as I'm out of breath, like work through this, work through this. But here's the thing, if that was God's house for us and somebody else bought it, then we for three years have been living in somebody else's house that God had for somebody else, <laughs> right? If, if you think that, that God has it boiled down to this small of a detail, things can get hairy quick and maybe you would say God knows everything and would prevent that, then free will is a sham, right? Like our choices, they're, they're that ordered, Again, if you subscribe to God having a plan down to those details, it can get hairy. Like I used to struggle with the idea of of the one, right? Because marrying somebody, it's one of the most important decisions you'll ever make. But what if somebody else marries the one that God has for me? What what happens then? Should I go on to get married because I know I want to get married? Is there a domino effect again that affects everybody where all of a sudden everybody's married to the wrong person? It would explain the divorce rate. It would explain some stuff, right? But it was paralyzing to me. I know but a few thousand women. There are billions on the planet. How would I know if this was the one when I don't know all the ones in the world? And it would just, it would freak me out. And I'd pray when I'm looking at cars. I would pray when I was looking at my first house. Again, when I was dating. God, I want your perfect will for my life, right? Not your permissible will. And you use all these phrases. But I realize now looking back that I was confusing God's omniscience with his divine will. Like one of the verses that I reflect on a lot, and maybe it's weird, but I find it oddly comforting that the Bible says he knows the number of hairs on our head. Right, like God knows details of our lives down to the number of hairs on our head. Paul's laughing, and I can't help but laugh because he's thinking that's not very hard. (laughs) But see, (laughs) this is when it's it's tricky making eye contact when you're preaching. (laughs) But, But maybe, like maybe that is your, like God knows the details of your life, and he doesn't just know them, he cares about them. Maybe for you, you're freaking out because you know the number of hairs on your head and you know that that hairline is receding, right? You know that you're going bald and that's what you're worried about. God cares down to that detail. However, I don't believe that God has a master plan for how many hairs you have on your head. Like if you use Rogaine or maybe even try to add to the hair on your head. I don't think you're going to break his master plan for the hair on your head. And all this I'm saying because with maturity, I've learned to hold to it just a, a, a trio of, you could call them truths. Obey God's word. Like what I know God wants from me, I'm going to obey it. I'm going to trust in his sovereignty that he's can, he can direct my steps as I move forward. He can work all things for good. And then I'm not going to wait for a detailed blueprint. Because when you look at the context of Scripture beginning to end, very few people got a blueprint or, or a step-by-step map in front like you think of Abraham, he's the most challenging one for me when I read scripture. Basically told by God, leave everything you know, everybody you know, and go. And, and trust me, I'll bless you. But he doesn't give them an itinerary. He doesn't give him a step-by-step plan. We're going to look at Gideon in a second. He tells Gideon, go in the strength you have. And he's not just saying go do something simple. He's saying go free your people from a nation of oppressors that have oppressed them for seven years. And he tells them, go in the strength you have. Jesus to the disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So he does give some details, right? He's going to make the disciples fishers of men. Told Abraham, I'm going to use you as a blessing. But we see again and again in scripture that we get far less of a master plan from God. And we get more of what you could call a game plan. What's a game plan? Well, in sports, you have rules to play by. You have boundaries. You have a goal. And you have plays that you call in a game plan to get to that goal. And each possession may look different. Some games you may lose outright, but you have a a game plan you approach the game with. We're called to do the same with life. Look, choosing your own adventure is terrible practice with the Bible, but God gives us the Bible and he gives us a brain. (laughs) And he does this for a reason. He gives us both a Bible and a brain because he invites us forward to make choices. Sometimes these choices are risky. Sometimes they're steps of faith. But you know what? Maybe they'll lead you into an adventure that he goes on you with. You know, when it comes to life choices, sometimes our life choices are black and white, uh, simple choices. You just need some sanctified common sense and you're good. Like, you know the step forward. But other decisions are big. There is no clear right answer. There's risk involved. And some of us shrink back in those moments. But God calls us to, as Emily was exhorting at the end of worship, lean into him to trust him in those moments while the Enemy would love nothing more but for us to live paralyzed in those moments where God is calling us forward. And I'm convinced one of the ways he does this is with this myth. Like what if I miss God's plan and the details, the comprehensive plan that he has for me? But we shouldn't forget that from the opening pages of scripture, as human beings, we've been given incredible power and responsibility here on earth. In Genesis, God makes us as humans stewards of the earth, stewards of Of our lives and our communities, we get the opportunity to make decisions and try stuff. He has Adam named the animals. Like, that's a pretty big deal. There's some wild animal names, right? And we don't always get it right. And that's scary. But we can try to make the best decisions possible. God didn't have to share his, his power or dominion with us in this way, but he did that and he called it good. You know, the enemy, I believe, loves for us to adopt a portrait of God that's stern and ready to terminate us or cancel us if we make a a wrong decision around the way. Or or if we make a wrong decision, he'll just leave us wandering in some labyrinth (laughs) into eternity, you know, if if we miss his plan and we miss his will. But God loves us more than that. And I want to disarm some of half-truths tonight. And I want to first do that by looking at two principles we see in Scripture, and then I want to look at two gifts God gives us uh, to walk forward in his plan for us in faith. But the first biblical principle will be peace. Because when you subscribe to the need to find God's comprehensive master plan and and missing it could send everything haywire, then what you end up doing is kind of walking in this low-grade sense of fear that you're going to miss God's plan rather than walking in faith. And you end up in a rut rather than in the path God has for you moving forward. And I think it's because of this conflict and this tension that we feel inside that we come up with these equations. Like, if it's God's will, you'll have peace about it. Or the churchy phrase when we make a decision is, well, I have peace about fill in the blank, whatever you made a decision about. And we can treat peace like it's God's permission slip. You know, in a culture that keeps objective truth at arm's length, right, we're a post-truth society, according to some would tell you that, it shouldn't surprise us that we often use subjective measures for discerning what we should do, because it's a practice that's bent on our comfort. Our peace, or lack of it though, we should recognize that a lot of times, we don't lack peace because we've broken God's standards. We miss peace because we've broken our own, right? Because we're not comfortable. It's a practice that if we're not comfortable, or if we're not careful, can put us in a place of self-sovereignty, which when you look at Scripture, yes, God wants to make us new creations and give us a new heart, but it can be dangerous because of our sin nature, our flesh, because of blind spots and the like. It's how you have somebody tell you that they're at peace when they're walking away from their family. Somebody will be settling into a lifestyle that's clearly sinful, but they'll be at peace with that. They'll say, I'm at peace. I feel less conflict. It's because they've called a ceasefire. If you look at Scripture, Galatians 5, verses 16 through 17 tells us our flesh and the spirit, they're at war. It says the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. What does that tell us? That when we call a ceasefire, when we say yes to our flesh and stop fighting that battle, we can settle into what Martin Luther King once called a a negative peace. It's not the presence of reconciliation. It's not the presence of harmony. It's just the absence of tension. We don't feel that tension anymore because we're no longer fighting. That's why Paul can say something like 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. Right? Sometimes peace isn't the indicator that we, we think it should be. And this is not me saying. <laughs> this is not me saying that we should forsake peace and just live stressed out lives. Let's rally. Let's be stressed out and worry all the time. No, Jesus, God clearly says to bring all that to him. But at the same time, again, sometimes peace isn't the indicator we think it is or we want it to be. Sometimes, ironically, when we say we're waiting for perfect peace or we're waiting for God's direction, we do the least. (laughs) We do little actual following and we feel more spiritual because of it. Now, we'll come back to this concept of peace in a second, I promise. But the the second principle I want to look at is trust. 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 Another famous verse, Proverbs 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Verse 6 says, In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. So how many people in here at one time or another have taken a trust fall? It's like the, the most common form of, of team bonding and uh, trust building for teams. Uh, for chemistry, all that above. The idea is stand on a chair, a table, Honestly, the higher the better, right, because the more trust it takes. I don't know how high they make you do this stuff. But then what do you do? You fall back, right? You lean back and you have everybody catch you, and that's how you show your trust. I would tell you tonight that the trust falls that God asks us to take, they fall forward. Again, if you look at Proverbs, trusting in God is leaning into him. Again, as Emily exhorted at the end of the worship set, leaning into him and not leaning into our own understanding. But that leaning, more often than not, it, it carries us forward. I think in our nature, in our own understanding, my first impulse is always to wait. I want a sign, like Gideon, I want, I want some water in the fleece, I want the dry fleece, the wet fleece, I want direction, I want the itinerary. And we end up living on our heels instead of on our toes in anticipation. Again, my natural inclination, leaning on my understanding, I want to wait. But in scripture, so often God starts not with wait for directions, wait for this, wait for that. Often God starts with go. The Great Commission, the first word is Go. Again, in the Old Testament, when he speaks to Gideon, he says, go in the strength you have. It's in Judges 6. Again, this was not some small request. He wasn't telling Gideon to go to the grocery store, take a trip across the street to knock on his neighbor's door. No, he was telling him to start a rebellion against the Midianites, this oppressive tribe of people that had oppressed the Israelites for seven years. He was telling him, "Go." That all of a sudden, that's different. Go in the strength you have to do that. That's a hefty ask by God. And so Gideon, right, leaning on his own understanding, his impulse was, oh, I need a couple signs. I need some confirmation here that that I'm hearing you right because I had some spicy food for dinner. This could just be a wild vision. But no, he, he asks God for signs, and God in his grace gives them to him. God is so gracious. But, you know, there are times where we think we're waiting on God to give us a sign, give us his master plan, and really he's waiting on us. Those can be dangerous times. I was reading Exodus about a month ago, and I think it's, what is it, Exodus 14, 15. Israelites are there at the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his chariots are right behind him. Moses is crying out to God, and what does God say? Word for word, he says, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving, right? He's saying, go. Stop waiting, go. See, waiting on God when he's waiting on us to move can be a dangerous place. There are times where we're told to wait in Scripture, but there are other times where we see it's important to step forward. Those Israelites, when they got through the Red Sea, they got to the Promised Land. God was waiting on them <laughs> to step into his promises, where he said, every place, right, you go, I'm going to take care of you. And yet they didn't, and that didn't end too well. He was asking the Israelites at the Promised Land, what he asked Gideon, and what he asked us tonight, to go in the strength you have. Why do we kind of flinch and hold back at first? Because, if I'm honest, I don't have a lot of strength. So what does that require of me? Trust. Trust. Not in my strength, but trusting in God's strength and trusting that he'll see me through. Not because of my strength, but he's strong in my weakness. See, God is, again, he's often gracious to us when we lean on our own understanding. Like like he did with Gideon, he'll show us grace. But I believe that God gives us two gifts so that we don't always have to ask for two signs like Gideon did. And the first gift is is the Bible. Simple, the Bible. You know, while treating the Bible like a choose-your-own-adventure book, Shout out, Anthony, you're back. I'm giving you one at the end of service. When you treat the Bible like a choose-your-own-adventure book, that's poor practice. But I believe that the Bible helps us make choices in life so we can follow God into adventures. Psalm 119:105 105, though, says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I got a couple oil lamps in my house. They, they, don't, they probably wouldn't even light to where Greg is sitting in the back of the room, but they light my feet and they light the path in front of me. It illuminates my, my f- next few steps. I think often in life, we want high beams, right? If I'm gonna go down into this valley, I wanna see what's on the other side of this dip, right? I wanna see what's around the corner. I wanna see what's at the end of this staircase before I go up this staircase into the dark. But no, scripture says his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto my path. And I think this is important because this is why we need to be in our word constantly. Day in, day out, moment by moment, it needs to be in us because it illuminates our next steps, our next steps that we're gonna take. You know, in similar ways, we want a map. Again, I want a map that's gonna get me from here to where God's calling me. And maybe that's why you'll hear people say that, yeah, the Bible is, is God's roadmap for your life. Right, we want map quest. There's another throwback for you. We want that printout where it shows us every step between here and where we're going. We want the turn-by-turn itinerary for us to get to our destination. And this is just the fruit of. The idea that we sometimes buy into that the totality of Christianity is God commands and we obey. Clearly, read scripture, that's important, that's key. But our role is bigger than that. It's not that passive. right? There are times where there are black and white commands in scripture, but there's sometimes where God leaves it wide open and we have to make decisions. And it's one reason that I believe God doesn't give us a map, but you can say he gives us a compass. He doesn't give us a map, but he gives us a compass. Because we need to learn how to live with convictions. Convictions are the compass by which we navigate these seasons in life where you may not know the right answer based on scripture, but you've got a deposit of conviction. And I'm not talking about, this is key, the conviction of sin. Where you're talking about you sinned and you felt the prick of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the definition you'll find in the dictionary is a firmly held belief. So a conviction for a a Christian is, is a belief you have that's based on Scripture, right, values you see in Scripture that you've, you've adopted in your life that help you navigate seasons in life where it's not black and white, where you got to take a step forward in faith. And I think the, the mistake we too often make is, is we'll follow our, our feelings. We buy into the culture's uh, chorus of do whatever makes you happy, do what makes you feel good, but feelings are meant to be felt, not followed. Now, they are meant to be felt. You're not called to ignore your feelings. They're they're an important way of of, of recognizing the moment you're in and, again, what you're feeling. It's healthy to recognize your feelings. But many times your feelings are not going to match your conviction. Many times your feelings are not going to match what you might feel is right in the moment. So that's why we follow our convictions. And, again, I said we were going to get back to this idea of peace. I think sometimes, again, we think that peace is that we're going to achieve certainty in life. That we'll be certain about the path forward. But I don't think it's so much about certainty as having clarity about your convictions. That the peace God wants us to have, it's not about certainty, but it's about being clear about what's important. And when you know what's important, you know your convictions, you have a peace going through any kind of season. You know, a great life advice I got once is write your plans in pencil and your convictions in pen. Write your plans in pencil but your convictions in pen because life is unpredictable. Anybody has lived... Been around the block once, you know life can be chaotic, unpredictable, hit you with some curveballs, it changes. But God's word that we should base our convictions on never changes. Sure, you, you mature, some of my convictions now are wildly different than when I became a new believer at 21, but God's word didn't change. Just the way I, I see it and apply it to my life and the values that I value for myself. Like I would tell you, like I'm going to be eating dinner after service. Some of you, your stomachs are rumbling right now. God doesn't care (laughs) what you're going to eat after dinner. Does he give us standards for stewarding our body, right, living healthy? Absolutely. Right? God may not have the one for you, right, out of everybody on the planet, but does he give us principles, guidelines, commands for how to go about finding that person that you're going to marry? Sure. Does he give us uh, convictions and standards and principles for how to live as husband and wife? Absolutely. Right, God, you might be looking for a job and you're, you're stressing, like, I want God's perfect will. I've been there, right? But he may not have the job for us, but he certainly has given you gifts and wisdom and discernment so that you can work whatever job you're in and honor God and serve your neighbor and love your neighbor in a very practical way. Again, God may not have the house, the car when you're looking for a house and a car. But he certainly gives us principles and standards with which we steward our finances, right, where we we can buy those things and, and still be generous and live generously. So what am I saying? If you want to find God's plans for your life, don't be paralyzed waiting for a blueprint. Obey what you know. Obey what he's made clear. But don't use a lack of a plan or a sign as a reason not to take a step forward in faith. You know, when you look throughout the greater context and content of Scripture, especially in the New Testament where it's a lot of epistles and teaching, you'll find that there isn't much emphasis on the kind of decisions we commonly get anxious about. But the primary focus is on godly character and convictions and virtue and value as a daily pattern. Making the right decision, I don't think it's as important to God as us being the right person. I think so often we get caught up on the details of the path and we forget how he wants us to walk the path. I think there's some areas in life, again, which car you buy doesn't matter as much to God as as how you steward that. Or or the decisions you're making financially. God certainly cares about those, but we can get so caught up on the details of the path, we forget how he wants us to walk and honor him. You know, Micah Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, What does the Lord require of you? find the right spouse, settle into the right house, raise God-loving kids. Oh, but it doesn't say that. What does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That's how he wants us to walk whatever path we take. Jesus stripped it down even further to even more fundamental truths. Love God and love people. Love God, love others. You know, just like we talk about a game plan, an athlete has to master the fundamentals to be of any use on game day, there's fundamentals that we have to master, if I may. We need to master these basics because without them we won't be good for any game plan on game day. Athletes have fundamentals and we're called to have convictions that are made up of fundamental values we see in scripture. While we don't have a, a treasure map, our values, the values we see in scripture should form convictions and those convictions should form a moral compass. You know, how do you form this compass in your life? Again, good advice I got. Identify, include, implement. Identify things in scripture that are valuable. We're talking about virtues, commands, even things that people have spoken prophetically over your life with scripture. Identify those things, then include them, right? When you're going through life, you come up to that decision where there's not a black and white answer. You begin to not turn to your feelings, Turn to these convictions, turn to these values that that you have as a part of your life, and then implement them. Make them a part of your life. You know, there are seasons in life where maybe you're making a move, or the military calls you from one place to another, or your wife has two brain surgeries, or you have a kid, you have a baby, where your routine uh, gets kicked in the teeth, right? Your uh, daily routine, your habits, they change, but your convictions don't change in those seasons. Because the Bible doesn't change in those seasons. So your values don't change in those seasons. Again, your conviction, or when you build this moral compass, it's, it's what enables you to take a stand when there's controversy and nobody else is willing to take a stand. It's what allows you to face hard decisions. It's what allows you to not be paralyzed when God wants you to walk in faith on a path of purpose. You can walk in conviction and calling because you have God's word. There's an awesome passage in Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. Deuteronomy 30, where Moses is speaking to the Israelites on behalf of God, and he says, this command I'm giving you today is not too difficult for you. It's not beyond your reach. It's not kept in heaven so distant that you have to ask, who will go up to heaven and bring it down so we can hear it and obey? It's not kept beyond the sea so far away that you must ask, who will cross the sea to bring it to us so we can hear it and obey? No, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart so that you can obey it. God's will and His plan, they're not as elusive as we think. It's just sometimes we're looking for the wrong thing. God gives us His word not so that we'll have a road map, an itinerary, a map quest from here to where He's calling us, but that, so that we'll have a compass. So often we're looking for a master plan when He wants to give you a game plan. Listen again though, athletes are going to be worthless on game day if they never look at the plays, if they never read the playbook, if they never show up to team meetings we got to take the word of God and actually see what's in there. <laughs> Read it. Those team meetings, go into life groups where you're wrestling with the text with other people that, that maybe have different experiences and different filters with which they see the word of God. But get in the word of God. Know what the scriptures say. Otherwise, what are you basing your convictions on? What's been parroted to you? What, maybe a quote you've seen over here or or a, a nice little phrasing over here? Let's. Take the word of God, it's a gift. Again, one of these two gifts that God gives us to walk forward in his plan and purposes for us. Let's unwrap it. Let's not leave it under the tree. Nobody does that with their gifts on Christmas morning. This is a gift from God. If we truly believe, right, there is a God, created everything, right, and he has a path forward, purposes for us, that he's given us his word, we'll open it. If you truly believe that. But the second gift that helps us tap into God's plans, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. The same way the word is a lamp unto our feet, speaking moment by moment and step by step. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says it in verse 16 and verse 25, this idea of walking by the Spirit. He says, I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, speaking to this conflict we mentioned earlier. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. When I was studying the Holy Spirit for that series we were in in December, I read Francis Chan's book, uh, the Forgotten God. I misplaced it so I couldn't study from it this week. I probably let one of y'all borrow it, so I always forget. If you got it, send it back to me sometime. But in that book, in Forgotten God, one of the things he says, let me not butcher it, is we too often get caught up on what's God's plan for me a year from now, and we don't ask the question, what's the Holy Spirit want for me right now? Both are important. I'm not trying to create a dichotomy where you shouldn't ask what's God's plan for a year or five years or ten years from now, planning for the future. That's important. But so often we never ask the question, no, what's the Holy Spirit asking me right now? Why is it so easy to do that? Because it's a lot harder to ask, Holy Spirit, what do you want right now? Because if he says something, all of a sudden we've got to do it <laughs> or we're disobeying, right? It's so much easier to meditate on what God may want from you next year because it's less demanding in the moment. But if we think about it, what we do right now, what we do today, what we do in this moment is going to get us where we need to go a year from now. That's why we should be asking this question. Holy Spirit, what do you want for me today? When we wake up in the morning, what do you want for me today, Holy Spirit? When we leave the house, Holy Spirit, what do you want from me? Where are, you, where are you guiding me? What conversations do you want me to have? How do you want me to have this interaction or that interaction? And how important is this gift of the Holy Spirit? It's one of those times in Scripture where we see God say explicitly, wait, pause. Right? Jesus had just given the disciples the great commission. The greatest mission we'll ever get. The mission of the church that, again, starts with the word go. And then you see in the beginning of Acts, Jesus says, but wait. <laughs> Pause. You need the Holy Spirit. Right? This is so important that we should wait for it. Receive it. But then when the Holy Spirit comes, what are the two things we see at Pentecost? It's powerful. We see wind and we see fire. Wind and fire are both elements that are, are so unpredictable, <laughs> uh, hard to put a finger on, put in a box, put a bow on top, and say, Here, there it is. You know, we got a lot of passages in Scripture that speak of God as a rock, a refuge, right? a, a place we can stand firm on, and that's important. That's so key. But I would tell you tonight that, that standing firm, this call in Scripture to stand firm and dig our heels in, that speaks to our convictions. But that's not about our mission. Our mission is not to dig our heels in, but it's to be on our toes, ready to go when God calls us to go, when the Holy Spirit calls us forward or tells us to do this or that. And the Holy Spirit, again, is described as wind. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is described as fire. Unpredictable, hard to predict. But if we're honest, that fits life pretty well, right? Life can be hard to predict. Life can be complex. Life isn't always black and white. But you know, in those moments, that's when the Holy Spirit is so key. Because we don't have to let those complexities paralyze us. Because we got the word of God and those values that form our convictions, that form our moral compass. And then we've got the spirit of God living in us. You know, if I could have the worship team come up, David was a man who lived in active pursuit of God's plans. Who it says in Psalm 131 verse 1, uh, David says, I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. David was somebody that didn't spend time paralyzed by the complexities of life, paralyzed by indecision, grappling with things that he may never fully grasp because his convictions, because as you read Psalm 119, he wrote that about the word being a lamp and, and how much he valued God's commands. Those formed his convictions so he didn't have to live paralyzed by the complexities of life. And he got hit with some curveballs. If you get some time, read 1 Samuel. The man... Had some ups and downs, highs and lows, but he was never frozen, never paralyzed because he had conviction and he treasured what God said. This was a man that God would say was a man after his own heart. This was a man that in the New Testament, when Paul is talking about the history, said serve the purposes of God in his generation. God had plans and purposes for David. God has plans and purposes for your life the same way that he did for David. And that's, again, a wonderful truth that we should reflect on daily. We should meditate on that. God has a plan for you. You woke up this morning, that's because God has a purpose for you. But we don't have to wait for a master plan. Life so often, it's not paint by numbers. Which, if we're honest, it's a good thing. I was an art major, and in those art history books, there weren't many paint by numbers pieces. (laughs) When you go to a museum, it's not a whole lot of paintings being hung in these museums that were paint by numbers. But you had these master artists who would take bold strokes, make bold decisions with color and composition, and they would paint these master paintings that people flock to to see. That's beauty. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. God has plans for you. He has purposes for you, destiny for you. May that spark an active pursuit of God and his plans for you every day that's guided by conviction and guided by the Holy Spirit. But I pray that we wouldn't be paralyzed trying to look for a comprehensive master plan before we step forward. You know, we opened with this idea of choose your own adventure. We get to make choices in life and and follow God onto adventures, and he meets us there. And that's the kind of stuff that people come from afar to witness. That's the kind of stuff that brings God's glory. It's the kind of stuff that brings glory to Jesus Christ. So tonight as we stand, if we can't stand, we're going to go back into worship. Just two things. We've mentioned these statistics again and again, the 30% that'll never read the Bible through, the 82% that don't open their Bible outside of church. Let's just not be statistics. Let's take the word of God and deposit it in our hearts so that we can walk on the path that God has for us, not just as individuals, but as a church, as a collective, as the body of Christ. There's fundamentals that we're, There's there's a playbook that we're to learn. And we come here to huddle, but when we leave here, we're breaking that huddle. We're running those plays. It's the word of God that helps us walk and honor him. But secondly, the Holy Spirit is here and he's speaking. Maybe he's telling you like Gideon, go in the strength you have. That thing you've been wrestling with, should I, shouldn't I. Maybe he's taking you to ask that step. He's asking you to take that step of faith. But no matter what you're grappling with, wrestling with in life, just ask the question as we go into worship. Holy Spirit, what are, you, what are you saying to me tonight? And let's ask a second question. What am I going to do about it? Again, Emily closed worship and said, hey, maybe you'll need prayer. We got prayer available in the back. The virtues are there. I'll be up here if you need prayer for anything. Maybe the Holy Spirit's telling you tonight, you need to give your life to Christ. And you've been pushing back and pushing back, thinking, oh, I got to get my life right first. No, no, no. You came. You come to Christ. He changes your life. But, Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. Jesus, we thank you that when you were in the garden, you didn't necessarily feel a a peace about a, a way forward. But you knew why God had sent you. You knew his plans. You knew his purposes. And because you stepped in that plan, Jesus, we have the opportunity to step into your presence and worship. We have the opportunity to step into your presence and receive grace. God, I pray that we would do just that tonight. But, Holy Spirit, we ask, what are you saying to us? What are you calling us to do? In Jesus' name, we praise you.